Nicolas Cage is probably one of our generation's definitive actors. Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting. It's your main man Andy Gillard here. Hope everyone's good out there right now. Matt always got a second on like stealing his thunder now. It's, it's all weird. <laughs> Hello everyone. Do you want to start again because my internet connection just went off because I just stopped my VPN. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <coughs> That's staying in. I thought um. I'd Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting. It's your main man, Andy Gillard here. Hope everyone's doing good out there. Hi everybody, Matt Guy here. Hope everybody is having a fabulous time at the moment in lockdown 2.0. Feliz Navidad. Hello, it's Stu. That was very uh, continental of you then, Stu. Well, we're worldwide, aren't we? We've got to uh, embrace the... Uh, <laughs> since we're heading towards our own little island of solitude in January, so let's reach out what we can. <laughs> <laughs> that's it let's make the most of it and uh, send our, our love across the the pacific pacific atlantic to our, our brothers over stateside as well so this week as we said before we are going to be remaking it large with a couple of remake nick cage films second on the bill is going to be the wicker man which is obviously the remake of the 1970s cult cult film classic uh, but first up, he's a film that's probably a little bit harsh to describe as a remake, and that's Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Where is he? Benny, call security. Nobody's calling anybody. Where's your grandson, Benny? I don't have to tell you anything. I haven't done anything. My grandson hasn't done anything. If he doesn't want to be a witness, he doesn't have to be a witness. I need to know where he is. Young man, I would like to know the name of your superior. Right now, I'm working on about an hour and a half sleep over the past three days. And I'm still trying to remain courteous. I'm beginning to think that that's getting in the way of my being effective. What? Stop it. What are you doing? I want to know where Daryl is. My God. Nobody saw me come in. Nobody knows I'm here. This old woman's going to run out of air, and you're going to have a tough time convincing people that it wasn't you who did it to her. And even if, and even if, you do convince them that you didn't kill her, on purpose, you're still going to have a tough time selling them that you took care of her with a fuck. God. Now listen to me. Where the fuck is he? I said, where the fuck is he? He's on an airplane. Miss Antoinette bought him a ticket and sent him to live with her family in England. It's okay. That's okay. That's a good girl. Suck, suck it up. Come, there you go. There you go. That's it. Take it in. That's a good girl. Take it in. Good. 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 
That's it. Breathe. Maybe you should drop dead, you selfish cunt. You ever think about your kids? Or your grandkids? Huh? Sucking up their inheritance through that fucked oxygen tube? And Benny's fucked intensive care? You fucks, I hate you. I hate you both. I... I should, I should fucking both. Just right now, I should fucking kill you fucking both! You're the fucking reason this country's going down the drain. So this film opens up with Nick Cage and Val Kilmer. They've been asked by a prison guard friend of theirs to empty out his locker in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. It turns out that the guard had left some paperwork in his locker, which meant that one of the prisoners didn't get transferred and he's still in his cell even though that cell is like five feet plus underwater now. After mocking the jailbird, Cage does then jump into the water to rescue him, and in doing so, he fucks his back up. He ends up being put onto Vicodin for the rest of his life, but he also gets promoted to lieutenant and gets a Medal of Valor. So we sort of find out straight off the bat that he's a bit of a dick, but he's probably a good guy because he's willing to dive into this overflowing river water to rescue another person so we're sort of a little bit conflicted straight off the bat here with cage well knowing the the title of the film and the original it's like well it's saying that he's bad in the name of the film itself so is he just gonna let this this guy drown in this in this swamp water mm. which i fully expect i thought well this is a harsh way to start a film so i, I was quite surprised i, I was i generally thought he was just gonna let him die I thought, oh, bad Val Kilmer's back again as well, but which is uh, a very misseen mis- thing these days, really. Um, but yeah, he's. I was really, yeah, I was shocked that he actually saved him. I was really shocked. Mm, I um, I thought it was a good example of how to instantly set a tone in a film straight away, like within thirty seconds of seeing Cage's character, you know exactly what kind of person to expect and what traits he's gonna he's gonna show throughout the film and it was it was done in um in a way that i think is mirrored throughout the film in terms of like a conflict within the character itself is he a good guy is he a bad guy he has these really horrible bad tendencies but is he gonna you know ultimately do the right thing Mm, absolutely the film then jumps forward six months cage is entering a crime scene the family has been murdered execution style Cage walks around the crime, telling his fellow officers what needs to be done. He seems to have his shit together. He comes across as an asshole, but basically a competent cop. Five illegal immigrants have been murdered. They've been dealing drugs on somebody else's patch. Cage is given the task of heading up this task force to find the killer. By this time, Cage is addicted to prescription and illegal drugs. He has someone working in evidence giving him a supply. He's also got his girlfriend, who is the sex worker, Eva Mendez, uh, who plays Frankie, and she shares her cocaine with him on the reg. <clears throat> it doesn't take long, and Cage is already starting to ra- unravel at this point. Whilst he's waiting for his prescription, he gets mad at the clerk because <laughs> she's on the phone. He barges behind the counter to get the drugs. I love when the security guard comes over and shouts at him. It's like, dude, you can't go behind there. He just shouts back, I'm a cop. No, you're not. And rather than showing his badge, he just flashes this fucking gun at him. <laughs> not into like a holster, just tucked into the waistband of his trousers. 
proper Dirty Harry style, like Magnum as well, isn't it? Like, yeah. It, it, basically, the big I am phallic massive cock gun that it is. <laughs> After hitting the streets, the police believe that a man called Big Fate is responsible for the murders. Whilst out on patrol, Cage stops a couple who are getting hot and heavy next to their car, telling them that he is searching them because they match a description of people passing drugs. This scene is fucking wild. Like, we see how far he's fallen from getting, like, a a medal of valour. He's now basically... I mean, I say basically, he's literally fucking this girl against a car while stealing their drugs in front of her boyfriend. The boyfriend tries to walk away. He threatens to shoot him unless he watches. (laughs) It's a great scene. Well, this is the the only scene in the film that I remembered for obvious reasons, because I have seen this before, and I knew it was coming, and, like, it was one of those... Sam Sam was in like in the room when I was watching the film on my laptop, <laughs> but I like you could hear the audio, so I stopped it. And, like was like right, I'll watch this another time because it was just one of those like watching in front of your parents kind of deals that I know it just makes me look like the sicko. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have been as bad if she was watching as well, but yeah, exactly. yeah, to uh, to, to have to describe uh, this is just for a podcast, love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whilst investigating, they find a possible witness to the murder leading them to a retirement home. He bursts in and there are two elderly ladies. One woman is doing another woman's hair. They ask the hairdresser about the whereabouts of her grandson, Daryl. She tries to cover for him, but he's been hiding out with her. Love this scene, though. So the grandmother is doing what she can to protect her grandson. Fully get it. The old woman who is sitting in the chair does not like the fact that these policemen are there, interrupting her hairdo. So her response is, how dare you come in here and not introduce yourselves to me? Even though it's absolutely fuck all to do with her. And the absolute look of disdain and hatred (laughs) on Cage's face. He's like a foot away from her, completely eyeballing her throughout this scene. Like, it's proper tense. Excellent. And then obviously it comes back again in a bit, which we'll get to, but... I love how much he seemingly hates these two old biddies <laughs> for no real reason. He just hates old people in general. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? <laughs> you see, look at the even the um, the ones who fit the profile, both young. Mm. The um, the guy in the guy in the um, the evidence room, older than same age as him, so he treats like a piece of shit. Yeah. God, he's just. He's just a dick. I think that's the best <laughs> way to, to describe it. He's just a complete asshole. Cage goes to visit his bookie. He asks Cage if he can sort out his daughter's speeding tickets. Cage unsuccessfully tries to get these tickets altered. When he gets told that he owes him three grand, he then bets a further $2,000. So rather than just paying up, he doubles down. He then takes the tickets off him to take to a state patroller. And Cage is such a scumbag that he turns up at the scene of an accident with a car overturned to speak to local law enforcement about rescinding the speeding ticket. <laughs> like, he doesn't even do it on the sly. He's like, oh, there might be people dead in that car, but fuck it, I need some help. Just some random woman who works for the police that he's been on patrol with in the past, who he just knew was there. <laughs> Yeah, he got lucky there, like quite literally. I mean, and then he tries to get her to uh, steal drugs out and lock up as well. 
there seems to be only like two people in the entire film who actually like him. As well. and this this random cop <laughs> is one of them, and she's only on screen for like two minutes. Yeah, and then like he immediately tries to break her trust by because she says that she does a lot of work in the evidence room, and the first thing he tries to do, rather than have sex with her, is get her to break the law for him. <laughs> so he's just he's an abusive, manipulative. Twat, for want of a better word. That is basically his character at this point. And it's just at the beginning of the slope here as well, because it gets worse. A little sidebar, Feruza Bulk, if that's her name pronounced, the one who is the state patroller mm-hmm. that he knows. She, I've, I had a bit of, like, when we were talking about first crushes, she was one of those for me in that in that era, because she was in the Waterboy. As like, oh, God, yeah, of as, course. As like the goth. Um, and of course she was in Craft, wasn't she, as well? Um, mm. as like the goth um, part, uh, side piece for Adam Sandler, and uh, so it's nice, quite nice to see her um, in that role. And then obviously, the look of disappointment on her face when she's put herself out there for some sexy time with Nick Cage, and he turns her down purely to see if she can get drugs for him, and then falls asleep. I mean, that's a yes. dick. That's a dick move. There, it's not a good move. I mean, uh, I think those are the only films I've ever seen her in. Has been this film. The first cult, and she's in the, the the sequel. Not a remake; it's actually a sequel. It turns out. I don't think I've seen her in anything else. She's in American History X. Is she? Um, I don't yeah. remember it. But um, I'm just looking down her um, her cast list now, and it's nothing. There's not a lot there to really uh, get excited about. She's in a TV short for Zitty Top, apparently. <laughs> um, but no, sadly, nothing uh, nothing to write home about. Mm, okay. It's this scene as well where we get our first close-up shot of an amphibian that possibly isn't there. So you notice that the camera work it goes very it goes handheld and looks like it's recorded on video where the rest could be in digital. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's very much out of context for the rest of it. Yeah, which is so obviously a sign of things to come. Some of it's like fisheye lens as well, ain't it? Where it's it all warps yeah. and everything. It's very. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm just thinking Breaking Bad was after this, wasn't it? So, is that mm-hmm. the, them scenes in Breaking Bad where you see the things running around in the desert, and it was very much like a almost like a scene setter, but it's not. It's like a kind of iguanas are a state of mind. <laughs> There's a lot of this in um, in Natural Born Killers when they're mm-hmm. having kind of hallucination drug scenes as well, um, in a quite similar setting um when they're kind of out like i think one of the characters um mickey's is bit by like venomous snakes and he and he cuts to this kind of footage in um in natural born killers it's quite a trope really i think it's really good as a way of kind of showing like hallucinogenic things going on Mm. in the next scene cage and kilmer set up a camera to keep an eye on one of big fate's associates Cage cannot figure out what these two fucking iguanas are doing on his coffee <laughs> table, as he says. Kilmer tells him there aren't any iguanas there. After arguing with Kilmer, the film does take a turn here. So not only do we get this fisheye lens, we also get this... Like, it's an extended music video almost <laughs> of these iguanas singing... Uh, was it Please Release Me? I can't actually remember what the song was now. I should have written it down. I generally hate these kind of things, but it's done with such panache that I think, yeah, this is this is class. 
Where you t- it's like a bit of almost European art house style to it. It's so, it's such a handbrake turn, but I actually quite like it. And it's got him staring right into the camera as well for no, no real reason. <laughs> I mean, it, have you ever have you ever played with an to iguana or iguana? Because I used to get told off all the time for saying iguana, but whatever. Have you actually been in the presence of one? Because they, they are quite mystical. I, like when the animal man used to come round at school. Yeah, way I'm sick of the same. <laughs> the animal man. That's got to be like yeah. that, that. That must just be a, a British thing. They can't. They can't do that in everywhere across the world. I, I would be interested to know. To be fair, they'll have a gunman in America. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, in America they would have much more interesting animals. So like they'll bring around a tortoise or something here, but in America they've got like a fucking a bald eagle or something coming <laughs> to school. Just pick off the small ones. <laughs> Mum, um, Martin used to have one. It, it lived in his bedroom. Its tank was in his bedroom. We used to, used mm. to get it out and put it on the table. And because they just go still, don't they? You can just you can push them around like they're dead. All oh, right, okay. They're, they're really like obviously because they're like di- little dinosaurs, aren't they? So mm. yeah, that was uh, that was a fun time when you're like 11, 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> After this scene, Cage visits his estranged father and mother-in-law, played by Stifler's mum. They're both addicts. You can see from Lieutenant Cage's life, right, like the people he's been surrounded with, you can see why he is the way he is, why he's also an addict, because it seems that it's almost passed down by blood and by by nature and nurture almost, I would imagine. I mean, she only drinks beer, though. Yes, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, that makes it acceptable, doesn't it? <laughs> Just gallons and gallons <laughs> and gallons of it. <laughs> After the police have brought in both of his associates, Big Fate makes an arrival into the police station with his lawyer. They have to tell the lawyer who the witness is, and in order to protect the kid, they decide to take him into hiding. Cage does a terrible job of this. Rather than hiding him, he takes him to a casino. (laughs) (laughs) The kid runs off because he's not being protected, and honestly, who could blame him? Whilst he's in this casino, Cage is there to see Frankie. She's been roughed up by one of her tricks who hasn't paid her. Cage threatens this kid and tells him, <coughs> and this kid, sorry, tells him, I'm connected. Cage doesn't care and takes 10 grand off him. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's, After losing. Oh, let's say it's, sorry, it, sure. it's never, because the, the relationship he has with her is really odd. Like, it's never explained, is it at all? Like, how do, obviously we know how, you could presume how they met, but for him to have this kind of like full like kind of paternal relationship with her, like, protecting her, and then just going around to like snort and fuck her, it's it's all very very strange. It's, well, not the rest of the film really, but yeah. It's... Well, yeah, it's a codependent relationship. I think that they're both two fucked up people who need each other to keep their fucked upness in check maybe i think might be the best way to put it mm, i say you're right there to be fair it's like um because even mendez's character is so like i don't think ditzy is the right word but she's you know she's quite easily led astray perhaps and that she just mm. needs somebody in the line of work that she's in that isn't a pimp to keep like to protect her and to keep her like kind of in check I think she uses Cage in, in, in that way. And then he, obviously, who wouldn't want to hang around with Eva Mendes. So you can see why the two like each other's company. Yeah. 
After he loses Daryl, Cage returns to the old folks' home to question his gran again. She confesses that she has shipped him off to the UK to be safe. She's a smart granny. This scene again is fucking stellar. <laughs> the reveal of him hiding behind the door when they come in is brilliant. So they walk through the room. The door is open. They, they're in there. They sit down. And then you just see Cage kick the door back. And he's just there <laughs> with an electric razor on his face. <laughs> just very low-key, like, shit's about to go down here. When she initially doesn't tell him what she's done with the kid, he decides to take the old Karen, basically, the old Karen. He decides to take her breathing tube out <laughs> and pulls a gun on hit the granny. I mean, to be fair, that, that is a good way of, of trying to get somebody to, to confess. And again, in this scene, you see the gun just tucked into his pants. But by this point, he's not even trying to hide it with the jacket. It's literally pointing at his dick in his front and centre. Mm. He just has no shits to give any longer. And then once he's got the information out of that, he says to them, maybe you should drop dead, you selfish old cunt. <laughs> like, it cuts like a fucking knife in this scene. It's it's superb. It's, it's still the um, just the, the pure comedy of that word, and it's still being, well, even then, relatively rare. Um, yeah. At the time, but he used even everything you've already seen with iguanas and all the trippy chaos. I didn't expect that to come out. <laughs> you just don't, dear, in Hollywood or in American films, you just don't expect that word, especially over 10 years ago. No, so yeah, it, it proper cuts through the bullshit and yeah, it delivers a punch, it does what it needs to do. It's perfect. Cage then lies to internal affairs about this. He then gets cornered by his bookie, who he now owes five grand, and he still hasn't got his daughter's ticket sorted out. Cage goes to see Frankie. She's been kept by the mob boss. That would be the kid who uh, <clears throat> who Cage roughed up in the hotel. It's one of his father's henchmen, basically. They tell Cage that he now owes them 50 grand for the tent that he stole. Cage is losing it at this point. His body looks physically broken. He's huddled over. He's barely able to speak. He's mumbling his words. He's not the man we have seen up until this point. He looks completely different. It's a really good acting job that you see him from, a, a, you know, an able-bodied person. And I think we're almost half, we're halfway through the film now. And he's at his lowest ebb. Like, it's a really well-made trope because then the redemption arc all the way back up works perfectly. Mm, I think they uh, one of the lines, whether it was intentional or not, um, I thought was really well done that just kind of shows actually though he's he's at least physically is in absolute decay there is still an element there of his of his street smarts like in order to like protect her mm. from being um, which essentially would be raped by the by the two henchmen as part of the deal you know he, he pretends to go along with it but then says oh well she's got another client in 15 minutes can you two mm -hmm. can you guys like keep up or can you can you be done in 15 and by yeah. saying that, actually got her out of having to do it. Uh, and I thought that was really, really well done. Like, he's still got his, you know, even if his body's breaking down on him, he's still got his mind there, which I thought was good. Mm. And I don't appreciate how stupid the, um, the henchmen were as well, like proper, typical film henchmen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was really well done. In order to protect Frankie, he takes her to his father's. 
As Frankie is a drug addict, she clashes with Cage's family. Her father is trying to get away from his addiction. His mother-in-law is trying to protect him, but she's also addicted to alcohol. It, it doesn't go well. Mid-argument, internal affairs arrive and they tell Cage that he's done. They take his gun and they tell him he's, re- he's restricted to desk duty only. His life is the drizzling shits at this point. Cage decides to partner up with Big Faith. He offers him information and protection so that he can evade the police as they are in closing on him. And he manages to make a drug deal for him so that he can pay off his debts to the mob and to the bookie. Has there ever been a film where internal affairs aren't the bad guys, even though in theory they're the ones that are trying to stop the corruption and stuff in a police force? I can't ever think of a film or a TV show where internal affairs aren't portrayed as the arseholes of the piece. When you actually think of what their job is, is their job is to like stop corruption and, and, and bad behaviour from police. There's, there's literally one that I can think of, and that's Line of Duty. <laughs> yeah, fair. <laughs> fair. And there's another you one. Are that, right. There's another police. I can't think of any. No, there's another police trap like this. I don't think I could ever think of a police chief that isn't black. <laughs> <laughs> Cage manages to pay his bookie, and then bets a further five k. He returns to Frankie. She's decided that she's going to join Cage's father at AA. Cage's family are getting sober, and he's still barely hanging on. Before Cage manages to pay off the mob, they pay him a visit at Big Big Fate's place. A shootout ensues as the mob get greedy and want to take Big Fate's cut as well. The mob get gunned down. We are treated to another out-of-body dream sequence where Cage sees the spirit of the mob boss still dancing, (laughs) doing a jig. Proper over-the-top. Shoot him again. Crazy stuff. Shoot him again. He's... He's proper off his tits at this point, Cages, having done some rock. I, I love these drug fueled sequences. Uh, they're, they're so out of context, but I don't know. I just think the way that Werner Herzog's dropped them in, they work so well, and they they shouldn't, but they really do. But they they almost they he almost puts them in when there's something actually really serious going on, <laughs> and it, it's mm-hmm. it would be if you took them out, it'd be pretty by the books bad cop film it almost it turns the whole yeah the whole vibe of the whole thing it yeah, makes right. it kind of it say makes it light-hearted but obviously it doesn't because it's all terrible but um <laughs> it gives it a kind of i don't know it humans it makes it more human in a way it's hard to describe it does it, it, it does elevate the film you are right because it would otherwise just be a generic dirty cop film which could quite easily fall into the trap of becoming a little bit ho-hum, a little bit run-of-the-mill. But actually having this sort of slant on it, I think I think Werner Herzog's done a fucking excellent job with it, I really do. As part of the celebrations, Cage gets big fate to smoke from his lucky crack pipe. <laughs> on the way back home, Cage stops off at the office. He tells the lead detective on the murder case who's replaced him to swing by the crime scene they may have missed something. Cage goes to sleep that night. He's too fucked up to even watch the rest of the match on which he's got the bet. And to be honest, he's, he's losing the bet anyway, so he doesn't really care. Frankie's on her way to rehab. His father's with her. It's just him and his mother-in-law, mother-in-law 
the only addicts left, alone and lonely. And horny, Kay. I thought. I, I genuinely thought they were going to do yeah, the deed. Yeah, I was expecting it. Um, I thought, uh, well, you know, why put it past him? He's he's done any for everything else that's possible up to this point. And um, the fact, and the fact that they cast her in that role as well, and you kind of expect it. Mm. I lost all but, my faculties there and just shouted, and horny in the like <laughs> in the middle of my house, like with the garage door <laughs> that everyone could hear me outside of. <laughs> <clears throat> Cage heads into the office the next day. It's another day of shoveling shit ahead for him. He gets there, and the guy who he roughed up when uh, when at the hotel, the guy he roughed up who uh, who beat up Frankie in the hotel, he's come to tell him that things are good between them, and that he's called off the mob now. He he doesn't want anything else to do with him. They're cool, and then walks in Cage's bookie. Cage didn't watch the end of the match, so he doesn't know that he actually won his bet. And then the bookie thanks him for sorting out the speeding tickets. Cage didn't do anything. <laughs> These things just worked themselves out for themselves. And then walks over the captain. The murder was solved. They found the crack pipe with Big Fate's DNA at the crime scene. Cage and Kilmer go to arrest Big Fate. Kilmer says that they should kill Big Fate. Cage tells him no, they're doing this by the books this time. Cage gets promoted and he gets another medal. The next we see Frankie, they're living together and she's pregnant. We see Cage's return to his old ways though. He's on the same car park where he saw the couple earlier where he fucked the guy's girlfriend in front of him. And he corners another couple taking their drugs. He takes these drugs to the hotel. He cuts up a few lines and the bellboy comes in. It was the kid from the start of the film. The one from the flood in prison. Cage tells him he has bad days. The guy tells him, listen... You saved my life. I'm almost done working. I'm going to get you out of here. The man Cage saved from certain death is now saving Cage from his certain death. They go to an aquarium. Surrounded by water, but not drowning. Let me ask you both a question. Is this a dream sequence? Everything happens here is just too good, isn't it? I thought it was. And I thought the, the point where I thought it was is when he's... His captain comes over with his smiley, happy, cheery face. Because I thought, no, it's t- something's not like this is too good to be true. And our character doesn't deserve, he doesn't deserve this, like, in, you know, as plots go and as, as formulas go, he doesn't deserve to have this happiness, happiness and he hasn't really had his comeuppance yet. So I, I 100% thought it was a dream sequence. Mm, yeah. I just the only dream sequence part I thought was a dream sequence was the aquarium bit. I just thought they'd done, they'd gone, they'd showed someone being such a despicable little shit for three two three quarters of the film, and yet he still had a happy ending. I thought, yeah, that's mm. that's a pretty cool thing to do actually, because it's it's not very. I mean, I can't think of very many films where the villain, well, questionable, uh, someone with questionable morals, actually comes out smelling roses like this. Mm. Uh, I thought it was just a pretty cool thing to do, especially with the um, the bump and everything. And I thought, oh yeah, of course, mm. of course, this older man with a weird wig and not wig hair, yet again, is going to have. Uh... <laughs> yeah, we haven't done wig wash yet. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, um... but then, then you mention it, his back seems to be fixed as well. Yeah, even though he kind of he, he he's not emphasising it as much as he was before. Um. So it, it could be, but 
where would you put it? I mean, is it a dream sequence from when he sees um, Big Fight's body dead and all, all the um, in that shootout when the when he's dancing? When he sees the angel dancing on the floor, could it have been then? And he could have overdosed then. You could. He could... I, I thought it was when he was watching the football match, which he had the bet on. So. Was it, I think he bet on Louisiana and it was a six-point spread and they were like 24-6 up. I think at that point when he sat with um, Stifler's mom, I think from that point on it's a dream sequence. Because mm. they're just the lowest of the low and the father and his sort of girlfriend, Eva Mendes, they're off doing, they're improving themselves and they couldn't get any lower. I think that's the the point where it veers off. Yeah, that's fair. The day after in the office, it happens. It's literally the the mob boss kid walks in. He gets up, walks off. As he's walking off, the bookie walks in to see. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. no cut. It's immediate. As soon as he leaves, the captain's jumping in, all in a single shot. It's not edited like it's across a few hours. It is literally within a 30-second span that it's bang, bang, bang. This is all and like, things happening to a man who doesn't deserve it. And when has a when has a bookie ever been that happy to give somebody money that he's lost? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, that, that, that says it all, doesn't it? Or just be allowed in a police station to sit around. Yeah, like, yeah, like just willy-nilly walk in and walk out. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's it for me. That, that was one question I had. But I, I really like that, that he does leave it open, that you can mm-hmm. sort of think whatever you want. So I think that was pretty cool. So, the budget on this movie was a fairly respectable $25 million. It's not, oh, that's, that's decent. Yeah, not, yeah. not massive, but decent for what, they, uh, for what they did with it, I think. The box office return internationally was $10.6 million. <gasps> It's disappointing. It is. It is. But then again, it's I. Let's just mention now. I had seen the original years ago, and knowing how sad and awful that film is, in well, the contents of the film is awful, not the film itself. Watching a Nicolas Cage remake of that film isn't the most appealing thing in the world. Mm. So if people went into it thinking that, then, well, they, they didn't go into it, did they, <laughs> obviously? Um, <laughs> but I, I saw a thing as well where the the creator of the first one was, like, really pissed off. Yeah. But it's actually, it's 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 more of a, it's not even a reimagining, it's just using similar themes. Mm-hmm. So they could yeah. they could have called it anything. They, could have, they didn't yeah. have to call it Bad Lieutenant. Yeah. I, I was going to come to that, but no, Nave brought it up. Yeah, it's a very disingenuous to call this a remake. It would be like calling Marvel's Avengers a remake of the Uma Thurman film, The Avengers. <laughs> it's both about sort of super-ish people who save the world. That's it's completely fucking different. These are this is a remake in that they've just reused the name of the film. And, a, and a, that that's it. And that's a, literally all. And a, a, almost a couple of scenes with the. Um... The car bonnet bit, um, mm. but it it's it's like the RoboCop remake in a way where that could mm. have been called anything else because it's a, it's yeah. not RoboCop at all. Yeah, I know what you mean. So mm. maybe that maybe that's one of the reasons why it it was 
he didn't hit with people. I don't know. Could have been. <clears throat> so on IMDb, it has got a 6.6. The Metacritic is a 69. The Rotten Tomatoes audience score is a 57%. Uh, but the critic score is an 85%. I've got to say, I think this is a, a solid eight yeah. uh, for me. I, th- I think I could see, I'll probably align more with the critical response than I do the, the others, personally. Uh, it ended up on quite a few top ten films of 2009 in the US, including the Huffington Post and Roger Ebert. Um, it was released a year later internationally, so it was on the top ten films of 2010 in the UK on the Tribune and Enemy. Jeanne Brooks from The Guardian said this is surely Cage's best performance in years. Roger Ebert said Nick Cage is as good as anyone since Klaus Kinski at portraying a man whose head is exploding. It's a hypnotic performance. He also said that the comparisons between this and the original Bad Lieutenant are pointless. They are very different films. Yeah, that's, that's That's pretty spot on. I think I'd yeah. I'd would have gone with an eight as well, because it was well we'll get on to it in a minute, but it was thoroughly thoroughly enjoyable. Mm. Uh, so the good, the bad, and the crazy. Uh, Matt, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I thought the um, from a good the uh, like the music and the score throughout the whole film really set in with that kind of super sleazy Orleans jazzy kind of um, vibe that was going on. Um, and I think it, it set the tone really nicely, and it had a bit of like the, I don't, yeah, my my music tech A level isn't isn't helping me here, but I think like like the che- <laughs> like the tubular bells kind of music that was in the background at times, um, yeah, was was really really good. I thought it just set the tone of like not necessarily tension, but a bit of um, uncomfortableness in the air, which for a lot of his performance, it was uncomfortable to watch in a lot of the scenes because of what he was trying to, you know, how he was making other people either scared or intimidated. And I think it, it reflected that really well. Um, the bad, I've, I've already mentioned it really, in that I never really felt like his character got the comeuppance he deserved for being a twat. No matter how likeable the, the he is because he, it's Nick Cage, when you think of the character and what he's actually done and what he's willing to overlook like he never really gets his his due um but what's due to him and i just thought that was a little bit like i i know it's probably like good that actually we've seen a film where he doesn't do that but you know rise and fall stories are great but i i think we should have seen the fall at the end a bit more harder than we actually did um in terms of crazy it's just well Good, good and bad, really mixed into the two. I thought the actual the the, mo- the like one of the underrated scenes in the film is when he's talking about that rusty spoon and the um, and the uh, metal detector, and it was quite a sweet scene. Maybe it was what he wanted to be a like an explorer and a pirate, um, <laughs> I, and like Eva Mendes is just absolutely besotted with him. And the crazy is just another film where Eva Mendes, who is like a grade A top blaster. Is <laughs> wanting wanting to be with Nick Cage? Like I don't get it. Is it something? Is it something that I just I just don't see? But like, how we, are we expected to believe that Eva Mendes would would give a second glance to Nick Cage? I don't think she would. It's Joe. Well, it's it's all the uh, 
It's the pair in more ways than one. (laughs) (laughs) Caged animal. Um, The good, vast majority of it. Like you already said, the the, the score. There's, I thought, it's very rare that you see anything set in New Orleans as well. So it's when you do, it's and it's done Mm. like this. It's really nice, especially around Mm. something that did happen. So, yeah, I thought that was that was a nice touch. The bad. That was the thing. What I was thinking about the bad. There's no real bad performance by anyone in this. I mean, it's all everyone is perfectly competent in doing what they do, even mm. and even the um, I mean, a normal thing for a kid actor, even the um, the NFL star, where you think well, the football yeah. star, you think, oh no, this is going to be, <laughs> <sighs> yeah, this, this is going into uh, into film cast territory, but we we all know what sport on on uh, fictional sports going how bad this is normally portrayed. But I thought that mm. was really well done. I thought that that was surprisingly good um but yeah just all round excellent for mm, w- what it yeah. was and i think the crazy was just his perf- him being unleashed to do whatever the fuck he wanted to do <laughs> to yeah. terrorizing the pensioners that was that was classic i mean that's that's going to be a highlight of these last six months seeing that scene <laughs> it was brilliant the the trippy parts because like we've already said that it, it just made the film something that it wouldn't have been without him. Mm. And I think, and just having Val Kilmer and not even using him, <laughs> just why? Yeah. Yeah, so like, for my good, bad and crazy, I've got a supplementary bad, which is, <laughs> I want more Val Kilmer. And also, you've got Michael fucking Shannon in this film, and he gets hardly any screen time. Michael Shannon is an absolute boss on screen. And it barely gets used, so that's like that's my supplementary bad. I suppose actually that's really my main bad because I would love there to be more from this universe. I really want to see this exact same film, but from Val Kilmer's point of view. Yeah. So we follow his character running alongside Cage. I think that'd be really interesting. I feel like there's more to be um, unearthed in this film, in this world that they've set up, and I'd love to see more of it. Yeah, you are kind of drip-fed a little bit of each character, aren't you? Um, mm. But not enough to actually get a big chunk out of them. So he, he would leave it open for that. I, I never thought of that. But that would It would be great to see another piece of like the shady goings-on of this precinct. Yeah. Like, like the Polaroids as well. We didn't even mention the Polaroids. They got straight <laughs> away at the start of the film, the locker. But I mean, there are so many stories that you just get a an aperitif off. You just get that little bite, but it could just be mined for so much gold, I think. Uh, My good, Werner Herzog, he's a director who is known for his incredible documentaries, but he absolutely smashes it here. I think the whole production is excellent. The camera work, the cinematography, the sound editing, like from a geeky cinema lover sort of point of view, I think it's really well done. He introduces this... European art house feel to an American film and it doesn't feel out of place it really works well it's superb and my crazy it's uh, like you mentioned before the uh, director of the original film Abel Ferrara his comments as far as remakes go I hope they burn in hell (laughs) I hope they're in the same streetcar and it blows up (laughs) fucking hell and Herzog was asked about these uh, these comments from Abel Ferrara. I've never seen a film by him. I have no idea who he is. <laughs> like, <laughs> fucking perfect. 
Obviously, Herzog had never seen the original, so he he it wasn't a remake in his eyes. It was a an original film to Werner Herzog. Apparently, they have made peace with each other. I don't know if Werner Herzog has ever got around to seeing the original film, though. <laughs> so, did you enjoy this film? I'll go first here. I think the fact that my main gripe is the fact that I want more of it <laughs> tells you that I, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a story about a man with a million fraying ropes that he is just trying to keep a hold of and he's struggling to do it. And I think it's a really, really well-made movie with some tremendous performances. So it's, it's two thumbs up from me. Stu? I think, like I already mentioned, and me not thinking it was a dream and the fact me thinking that they had gone down the route of showing that someone who can be as despicable as him can actually do all all the things that he's done and still get a happy ending. I thought that was pretty cool. So I think that should have been mentioned in my good as well. But yeah, just for every reason you could possibly think of, and even me, my love of silly films, this I was I didn't look up at the clock once. I put it on, mm. watched the whole thing, and then looked at the time, and it was... I was just engrossed with it the whole time. It was superb. I loved it. Yeah. And like, it's got a two hour runtime. So it's not like it's like zooming through. It's a well paced film that tells a, a fairly complex story, I think. It's almost, uh, it, 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 it could almost be like set in the same world as The Shield, the TV show, the, mm. the, the um, which was, again, very, very underrated. It was buried on, on Channel 5 on a Thursday night, I think, over here. So hardly anyone yeah. saw it. But yeah, that that was that kind of thing about dirty cops and things like that. But yeah, you could you could easily see this spinning off into a like a HBO series. I think that'd mm. be awesome. Mm, absolutely, Matt. Did you enjoy it? Uh, I stopped playing FIFA to watch it. Enough said. <laughs> no, seriously. No, legit, legit. Um, spoiler alert for a future episode. This will probably push Conair out my top five. Um, mm. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Out of the out yeah. of the trifecta of Conair, the Rock, and Face Off, Conair would have to be the one to go out of them three for me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. It's sleazy. It's um, bent cops. It's got a bit of the mob. It's got. It, I just love those kind of films. They're like my go-to, uh, and I think it did mm. it really well. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, I I've watched this film three times this week. <laughs> like, so I, I did my first just a normal watch through to get the gist of it. And then the second time I was going to start making notes and I immediately put my notes down because I just wanted to watch the film again. I really enjoyed it. So I had to watch it again this morning just to make the notes. Yeah, it, proper engrossing stuff. I mean, this is, so, I just put it on record that seeing Andy happy about anything at all is, is, is quite amazing to see. Yeah, but like it's such a dark and gritty, miserable <laughs> film. <laughs> so was Nick, was he good or was he bad? Let's go back to you, Matt. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was. Um, crazy, yes. Like, we enjoy Crazy Cage, but it was more of like a controlled, uh, like a fury that was like an, an impatience and an irritation that he pulled mm. off really well. Like, uh, but actually quite realistically, like we've all been there where we just want something from somebody there and then. There was very much elements of Douglas and falling down um, about his character. And I just think he did it fantastically well. Um, and... He then flipped that over to his kind of the drug, the drug and high um, side, and, and did that really well. As like when you look, think back on that film, 
there's so much complexity to his to his performance that I think it will get overlooked by the fact that it's a cop and drug film. But actually, he's he's done an amazing mm. job of portraying all those things really well. Mm-hmm. Stu, was he good? He was. I know we're going to come to this in a few weeks, but is this one of the best performances he's done in the last decade? Would you say? Because <laughs> it wasn't. Like you said it's not. It wasn't just Crazy Cage. It was. Every single aspect of his performance was great, and for, mm. well, you said you mentioned it earlier, Andy, about the um, his physical work as well, being hunched over and then and then being bedraggled and being a complete mess. Mm. I can't remember it, seeing him in, in the ones that we've done so far, him putting a, a physical performance in like this. So. I thought yeah. he was. I thought he was really, really good in this. Uh, uh, shockingly so. Yeah, and uh, so the the other physical performance that springs to my mind would be Leaving Las Vegas, where he plays a, 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 an alcohol, um, an alcoholic. Sorry, um, and in that film, apparently he was buzzed throughout the whole film, so he was drinking almost as much as the character was to to try and stay in. But Cage wasn't even doing that on this. He wasn't drinking or anything like that to try and get that. That, that feel of the character. So the fact that he's just acting is marvellous. I, I think the progression of the character as well, so he goes from a slime ball to a dickhead to an outright criminal to a gangster. And then we get the redemption. We've said on this podcast before that Cage's best films and his best performances come when there is a real character growth and a proper arc for his characters. Mm-hmm. It gives him room to explore and to really sink his teeth into it. And that's exactly what this film gives him. You see all the facets of Cage in this. You see him go from his high energy to his low, and then back again. He's tightly wound to being almost asleep. I assume it's related to whatever drugs he's supposed to be on in that scene. And and that's the point of it. But it's when you look at him, there's a marked difference in who he is on the character's journey. And it's so well done. Like this, this might be, yeah, this might be one of the best performances, like you say, in the last decade. It's, it's a really, really good performance. So I'm going to open up another beer now because we're going to be moving on to the Wicker Man. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it all in. <laughs> oh, good God. <laughs> I don't believe in your God! I don't believe in sacrifice! No, no, don't move it! Ah! What? Ah! What is it? What is it? What is that? What is that? What is it? Oh no, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! Oh, my eyes! My eyes! Ah! 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 Very different reasons. 
Sometimes you oh, need to take a step back and appreciate art just over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I was genuinely excited about discussing this film. Um, I saw it a few years ago when another podcast that I listened to spoke about it. And I remember watching it and just creasing and revisiting it. And it, I didn't realise that there were two cuts of this film. It wasn't until I got to the end of this film I realised there is actually an unrated cut as well. So there's like a PG-13 version and an unrated cut. So the the PG version isn't great. I mean, the the actual the unrated version isn't great either, <laughs> but it's at least a bit more humorous, I think. But anyway, it's been 24 weeks and we've finally got to the Wicker Man. Here we are. <laughs> There is an early warning sign straight off the bat. We are watching a Millennium Films uh, Presents, a Saturn Films production, an Emmett Furler Films production for Equity Pictures, Maiden Funds, GmbH and Co, KG the Third and New Image Entertainment GmB. (laughs) So the film starts with seven different production companies. We've said before, when there's that many, you know it's going to be a shit show. And it does not disappoint in those terms. I mean, what do all these pe- companies do? Or does someone make the sandwiches or something? Because mm. it, it might be. I think Saturn Films is Cage's production company. So it might just literally be he's starring in it so his company gets a credit. But yeah, the others have got to put some money in or something somewhere in order to get a credit, you'd think. <laughs> you'd, well, you, you'd think, but... Who even knows at this point? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the film opens up on a diner. Sat at the counter is Aaron Eckhart. <laughs> that would be the Oscar-nominated actor Aaron Eckhart. Harvey Dent sat at the diner counter. And then we never see him again. What the fuck is that about? I was so angry when I realised he was in this and then we don't see him after all. I mean, what... Terrible. I was trying to. I was trying to think when you said earlier, did you notice anyone else in this film? Until you just said that, I couldn't. I couldn't even remember him being in it. Yeah, he's he's got a cap on and he just gets up and walks out the diner, and that's literally all of his involvement. But I just feel like saying to the camera, "Follow him," because I'm sure it'll be more interesting <laughs> than what you give us. <laughs> the diner thing has absolutely no bearing on the rest of the film. It's really odd. Cage is a motorbike cop. Whilst on patrol, a doll falls out of a moving car. Cage picks it up and returns it to an ungrateful little cunt. (laughs) The kid then throws this doll back onto the floor. As Cage goes to turn, he turns, he picks up the doll. A lorry smashes into the car and somehow the car explodes. Like this is an action film from the 1980s and a gas tank has been shot. Like that doesn't happen in real life. That's really odd. There was a there was a moment in this before that happened. So, as he's approaching the car, mm. a van, uh, a, a big truck goes past, and then it cuts to him walking towards it. And they've also got a truck going past. And I thought that's actually like a like a really oddly detailed bit of um, consistency there. Like they've obviously like gone, oh fuck, we're gonna have to send that van past again. So it looks like. <laughs> um, it's, it's all happening in the same shot and I just thought a, a film that if they're going to those lengths to make those bits of uh, continuity correct 
there's one scene later, if it's not in your guys' crazy, I'm going to have to mention it, where how somebody in editing hasn't picked this up, I do not know. I can't wait till we get to it. It's just one of those like <laughs> right. really stupid things that like missed missed the cutting room floor somehow. <clears throat> Much like the diner scene, this scene has absolutely no bearing on anything either. It's utterly pointless. We cut to Cage sat at home. A police friend stops around to check in and congratulate him on his commendation. Why has he been commended? There's no bodies found in the car. So basically, all that's happened is he was on site when there was an accident, when a car exploded, <laughs> but he somehow got a medal for it. <laughs> Cage has been sent a letter. This is about Rowan, a missing child from an ex-love who ran out on Cage 10 years prior. Cage goes to the police station and gives the letter to his colleagues to read. Cage tells us that the ex is from his ex sorry, the letter is from his ex fiance. His colleague gives him a quizzical look and Cage explains we were close. Were you close, yeah. Nick? Were you close to your ex fiance by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking terrible script. Cage then decides to visit Summer's Isle. That would be the place where Rowan has gone missing. In order to get to Summer's Isle, he has to take a boat as far as he possibly can. He then needs to take a plane. He finds this old man who does deliveries to Summer's Isle. He's got a contract with them, he says, and he doesn't want to lose that contract. It's a weekly drop-off. Cage bribes him with $150. The old fella says, yeah, fuck it, I'll risk losing my job for the sake of a couple days' work. When Cage lands on Summer's Isle, he's told to fuck off. It's ba- it's private property, basically. The old women refuse to look at the photo of the missing kid and tell him they don't know who she is and that she's not the daughter of Cage's fiance. So do they know who she is or don't they? I mean, try and at least stick to a script here. Stop, keep flipping. And it does this a lot, I find, in this movie. They'll say one thing, one line, and the next line is the exact opposite thing. It's well, crap. It's funny you say that because... Do you, did, did you remember when he was like, oh, I can swim that way. But then when they get him into the plane, it's like he's going to Skull Island and he's going, he's traveling from about <laughs> for like two days into like the mountains. But then he's like, apparently it's close enough that he can swim it if he needs to. <laughs> Ridiculous. <clears throat> I also like in this scene that you get those two fellas who are carrying something in a Hessian bag and his first guess is it a shark? <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing not, Nick, to be perfectly honest, mate. You're in a, a largely domesticated island area. A bit odd. And then the other thing is, do we actually get any payoff to that? Did I fall asleep and they tell us? Because we don't see inside it. We don't know what was actually in this Hessian bag. He goes to touch it and shits his pants when they move it. But there's no payoff to it. So. No. What was the point? Just to build the tension of weirdness. Yeah, that's got to be yeah, it. And just the yeah, the random blood dripping from the bottom of it. <laughs> that's it. It was a shark and it just eaten somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Cage goes to his hotel. They've been expecting him. Even though everyone is acting like they weren't expecting him. So that's a bit weird. I nearly pissed myself when he just unnecessarily announces himself to the whole pub. It's just like he starts he's hitting his wallet on the side so everyone can hear him and tells them, I need to speak to every one of you at some point. 
And they all just turn and ignore him. <laughs> Cage then kills a bee, and everyone acts like he has just dropped Trey and taken a shit on the bar. Cage meets with his ex-fiancée. She tells him, do not believe what you see. During their private meetup, Cage spends ages trying to talk to her about why she ran away. Like, her daughter is missing, and he wants to know, why did you leave me? Like, mate, that can probably wait till a little bit later in the film. (laughs) Also, she just bats him off saying, like, we were young back then. He's easily 10 years older than her. So whilst she may have been young, he was clearly (laughs) in his 30s at this point. That is not the same thing. Cage asks why she doesn't get the kid's dad involved. She tells him, the only person I trust is you. That doesn't make any sense. You haven't seen him for 10 years. And then if it, okay. There's people I haven't seen for 10 years. I wouldn't have trusted him when I knew him 10 years ago, let alone. Exactly. <laughs> Cage is frantically searching his bags. His self-help tapes are missing. <laughs> Again, that plays no bearing in anything. They could at least have him waylay his um, his adrenaline jabs because we find out that he's allergic to bees. They could have done something like that, but his self-help tapes like doesn't make any sense, doesn't have any importance. Why throw that tidbit in unless you're going to pay it off? And it just doesn't happen. There could have been a whole thing there about uh, electromagnetism and that you can't, they've just been destroyed. That would have been yeah. That would have made any, it anything mu- else. Much more like lost. Just turn it into the whole thing into lost, and then it explain why his phone wouldn't work and all this kind of thing. There'd be a mm. lot more payoff if just one little thing. Because <laughs> who is? I mean, you said about the about that the bar hotel wooden Christmas hut, whatever whatever <laughs> it was. Why? Why is there a guest room when no one stays there? Yeah, no one's allowed, so where the fuck has that come from? Whose room was that before? Yeah, good point. Uh, So Lily Sobieski is playing the maid of the pub, I guess you'd call it. She tells him that she doesn't know where those tapes are. We then get a dream flashback to five minutes ago. (laughs) Like, not enough time has passed in this film to be giving us flashbacks to what we've just seen. It's like just like WWE Raw. This is like you've seen (laughs) you've seen a match, and then five minutes later, it tells you about what happened in it again. Yeah, we get to see a weird weird scene between the innkeeper and a pair of twins discussing tomorrow being the day of death and rebirth, and the Wicker Man is coming. Cage keeps seeing a child who he assumes to be Rowan. He follows her to a barn. He nearly falls through the wooden floors, but he manages to just about survive. Bemoaning having no honey available for his tea, Cage (laughs) interacts with Lily Sobieski. She confesses last year's harvest was a failure. Now, I don't know, but if you're allergic to bees, would you be allergic to honey? No. Or is that just an assumption I've made? I, I thought there'd be some link. No, it's you're allergic to the um, the poison and the sting, not the actual okay. honey itself. Right. Okay. I wasn't uh, sure. Well, I, I, I thought I, I, didn't I presume know. so because other, honey's in everything, ain't? Eh? And you, unless you, you can't be unless if you wondering what happens if you're diabetic and you get stung by a bee. I don't know because <laughs> there's a lot of sugar in it, isn't there? So I, I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I, Anyone I, out there who is diabetic or allergic to bees, drop us a line. Yeah, Dean, probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd, I'd say that it'd be the act, the poison that you'd be allergic to rather than okay. the product. That's fair enough. Cage follows Sobieski outside. This scene is fucking painful. Cage asks if she has seen Rowan. Sobieski just giggles and doesn't answer. Cage asks what's happening tomorrow. Oh, no, sorry. Cage asks what is happening the day of tomorrow. <laughs> Sobie ask, Sobieski asks, do you mean the day after tomorrow? Nothing is happening. No, I mean tomorrow. I told you. Like <laughs> That conversation is fucking wild. I have no idea what they are talking about. Why didn't they just cut that? Have him ask what's happening tomorrow? Nothing. And then move on. <laughs> like, it needs to be seen to be believed, that scene does. It is weird as shit. And then she take me with you. <laughs> I think this scene as well is probably the best point of the film to do wig watch. Because Nick Cage's hair colour does not exist in nature. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's really dark. This, this shade of brown is not natural. His hair is somehow like lifeless and lank, but also yet really thin, but sprightly. It's weird. It's the possibly the weirdest wig I think he's had yet. Cage then goes to the school. He starts screaming at the children for being little shits and for the teacher to lie, for lying to him. He gets really angry when her name is revealed as being Sister Rose. Of course, another plant. <laughs> okay, Nick, yeah. <laughs> The teacher tells Cage that the kids are grieving. Rowan is dead. But they don't use that word. Okay. And the, you got the uh, the crow part as well. The crow in the desk. Oh, fucking hell. The crow in the desk. <laughs> Jesus. Well, he's, he's also disdain. And, well, this, is it something like that? This is what you're teaching them? It's something like that. Where he's, he's, he gets more yeah. angry about the fact that there's a crow in the desk than the child being missing. <laughs> in the original... Like Cage's character, Edward Wood. Uh, he gets really angry because she's talking about penises. Like, but they've cut that bit out, but they've left in the, the animal torture, which I thought was a bit of a weird twist. Oh, I didn't quite get that. Um, so, yeah, Cage asks Sister Rose how the kid died. Rose says she'll burn to death. When asked what, she says, I told you, she burned to death. He leaves the school and bumps into Sister Rose's doppelganger. Cage asks, didn't I just speak to you? Cage is clearly not one of the best and brightest police officers in the United <laughs> States. <laughs> like at no point does he just think, oh, maybe she's got a twin. Well, maybe I've, I've, speak maybe the fact that he's already seen a, one pair of twins already. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not like it's a day later. Didn't I speak to you? Yes. It's literally, I've walked down this road and bumped into another person. Do you think she's run around and got changed into something else? <laughs> Cage then speaks to his ex once again. She believes that Rowan is still alive. <clears throat> she tells Cage that Rowan is his child. Considering Cage's ex grew up on Summer's Isle, she has a cracking Australian accent in this scene. Like, she's not even hiding it. It's really bad. We've seen some shitty cage accents, but she puts him to shame in this. Awful. (laughs) 
Cage tells his ex that he's going to use the pilot's radio on the plane and he runs to meet him. He falls asleep and then wakes up again halfway <laughs> on the way there. <laughs> he gets to the plane and the radio has been damaged. Maybe he shouldn't have taken a nap. The pilot is nowhere to be seen. Cage doesn't even seem to notice that fact that this plane is just left unattended and broken. Cage then visits Dr. Moss. Of course, another plant. He finds fetuses <laughs> in a jar and a picture of Rowan as the May Queen of last year's harvest, saying that it was the worst harvest ever. Cage gets angry and shouts at the ex because she was part of the ceremony. What has sort of come out of nowhere, this this anger that he now seems to have for his ex fiance, who he was close to, apparently. He's been sort of bumbling along, now all of a sudden he's mad, and then he goes back to just bumbling along. Really, like an almost bipolar performance from Cage, I thought, in in parts like this. Well, in the uncut version, so I, I must have watched the, the PG-13 version, do they go into any more detail about him having either withdrawal symptoms from the medication he's taking or anything like that? Because... They, that's another kind of thing that they explore but don't give you any payoff to is he's taking these medications for like hallucinations. Um, and I thought that maybe that was something that just got cut out of this, but I'm guessing not. The only thing I recall from the unrated version is the very end when they capture him. Mm. Like the rest of it is virtually the same film. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I, I skipped through just to watch the third act again because the other two are bad. <laughs> well... Uh, is this the um, the bit with the um, the picture frame being broken? We, we skipped over that already. <laughs> Is that a cool? Yes, we have. Yeah, yeah. That that was in the the previous scene with Lily Sobieski. So the day of death and rebirth had been mentioned in a whisper prior to this, but it's now all of a sudden become central to the storyline, almost as if from nowhere. Terrible storytelling, I think this is. And as quickly as Cage got mad, he's now hugging and apologising. He then kisses the ex. This feels wholly inappropriate, <laughs> considering the daughter is still missing and yep. probably dead. <laughs> Cage gets stung. He's allergic to bees. He nearly dies. Dr Moss tells him that she has treated him the old way and saved his life. Cage then goes to talk to the leader of the island, Sister Summers Isle, and he asks her permission to exhume the body of Rowan. She babbles on about Salem and how they ended up on the island, and it's utterly boring and completely pointless. It makes no sense to the, the central plot of the story. I don't understand it. I really forgot how boring this film actually is for the first two acts. <laughs> like it is literally the third act is the only saving grace of this movie. The first two acts really drag. They are all over the place, and it's badly acted from everybody. And it's got some. It's got a few half decent actors mm, in there, but yeah, it does. It's um, a lot, lot of payday work going on in here. I think it's this is. I know we'll get onto the actual point of this whole film later on, but it was about this point where I thought, "Is this a joke? Is it actually a piss take?" Because it would be a safe assumption. Yeah, is it? As I thought. As I remember the, the original, because it was one of the things, it was a classic, I watched it on Grandad and stuff like that, but, and it, I remember it, it was quirky and weird anyway, but, well, this can't be 
they can't be taking this seriously. It must be a parody. It has to be. And then as, that would make more sense. As soon as as soon as I started thinking that way, every time he came on screen, I just started giggling to myself because it got more <laughs> and more ridiculous. <laughs> Cage gets the permission to open up the grave. I don't know why, but for some reason he waits to nightfall before trying to the He's a copper. Surely he knows the best time of day would be during daylight when he can actually see if there's any evidence there. He opens up the coffin and inside he finds a doll with their face burnt off. He ends up in a crypt somehow. I don't really know how he ended up in there. I can't remember. He gets mad, and now the final act finally begins. Yeah, I mean, he went to that. So the lock was off the crypt. the the yep. new The new lock that they made point to uh, highlight. <laughs> yeah, it was somehow open. So I mean, why would you get into? I mean, he he said that he thought he heard he or saw Rowan again in the water. So you're going into into swimming around in dirty sewer water where you can't see <laughs> with it. A piece of a piece of wooden beam holding the holding the the, the hatch door open. You think this is highly silly, especially at night. Yeah, and it's it again. It's how did she how did she hear him from all the way from down where? She, why would she come? Well, we know why later on, but again, mm. it it makes absolutely no sense at all. No, it doesn't. I mean, what was it? What what was in the flooded tunnel? There was nothing there. No. I, that's a good point. Why was he even down? I, I don't know what they were doing. It was. He saw, he saw, he saw something red, so then went swimming in the sewer. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that isn't that what you what you normally do? Yeah, that's it. So as I say, we now enter the third act, and about fucking time too. He breaks into Sister Summer's Isle's house. He finds a naked man with bee stings in a bed, a sexy lady covered in bees who winks at him, and then he runs off. <laughs> He bumps into teacher sister Rose once again and he pulls a fucking gun on her in order to steal her bike. Wow. (laughs) He gets back to the pub trying to rally the menfolk behind him. None of them answer him. He breaks into a woman's house and screams at her to stay out his fucking way. (laughs) Cage is absolutely losing his shit and he finds the pilot's body at this point. Which, they've cut his hand off if you notice. Mm -hmm. Yep. But they make they make no point of it, and it never comes back in. So why did they do that? He walks back to the bar where he's staying. The landlady says, "You look worse for wear." Silently, Cage walks across and knocks her the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> One punch, bosh! And then he does some Bruce Lee chop and a drop kick on Lily Sobieski. In the unrated version, this scene is much funnier. Like, it's good in this, but in the unrated version, it's it's ridiculous. Like, he does a proper fly kick. It's mental. And when she passes out, like, her head hits the uh, head hits the wall behind her. And she does, like, a proper pratfall where her eyes roll back into her head and she, like, just <laughs> flops down to the ground. <laughs> it was so over the top. It was like a Benny Hill sketch. <laughs> now hidden in a bear costume... He joins a parade for the Harvest Festival. When they get to the site of the sacrifice, he sees Rowan. Rowan runs into her mother's arms, asking, did I do it right, mummy? 
Cage is a cop and he hasn't got a fucking clue what he's going on here. <laughs> they explain that he is the sacrifice and not Rowan. He still doesn't seem to understand it. <laughs> Willow, the ex, she tells Cage they have orchestrated everything. So are we supposed to believe that absolutely everything in this film and 10 years prior to this film, including the truck slamming into that car and him then coming, deciding to come to this island, all of that was planned because that is too much deus ex machina for me. Too <laughs> much. I mean, the, the whole truck thing makes, still makes no sense at all. No. Like, you see, the visions thing... Why would he see visions of someone, a girl he's never seen before at that point? Doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. The, the diner thing again, plot device. The the uh, the co-worker who comes to check on him. We already mentioned why he was getting a commendation. None of that made any made any sense at all. Anyway, <laughs> so then it. so then you get to the you get to the island, and then you see a shark in a bag. That why <laughs> you stay in the in a guest house that's not on an island where there's no visitors, and you, you should thinking mm, maybe there's something a bit off here. <laughs> <laughs> and like you said that it's a lot of the stuff on the island you can understand that kind of makes mm. some kind of sense, and obviously that's why the padlock was left open to go and trap him in there, and, and why the bees and all the uh, hexagons everywhere on the doors and everything. Mm. And you notice that straight away. As soon as you, yeah. I mean, you don't see hexagon win, hexagon windows very often, do you? And no, especially if you've got a bee allergy, you'd, you'd surely be looking for bee-related things. <laughs> so it's so the original seventy-three film. <clears throat> it starts at the point where Edward Woodward arrives at the island. They don't have any of that preamble. He's on the island because there is a missing child. That's exactly what they could have done here. It didn't need any of that crap. It doesn't need any of this explanation of this is his kid, even though it probably isn't really his kid. It doesn't need any of that. It's all superfluous, and it adds nothing to the film other than making it even more unbelievable than it already is. It's already stretching at the, the seams. And then you throw in this crap as well. It's too much. I mean, the, the bit after the, um, the bit with them two picking up two new guys... I mean, you think, okay, so they've they've now gone to get two more victims, and is this gonna is this another ten years in the future? We're gonna get them then. I, I assume that's the plan. Yeah, it's a long it's a long play, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah, it certainly is. Yeah, <laughs> the long con. So it was this point where I realised that there was two films, because in the version that we watched, you hear Nick Cage's legs being broken. In the unrated version, you actually see him get hobbled. Oh, my legs. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so Mole it, Man it, from The Simpsons. It would be like, <laughs> it's like, it's like <laughs> how they described it. It was just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So you just hear the voiceover, but in the unrated version, they actually you actually see it. And it, that, that does make more sense. So it is more violent and it does make it does add a little bit something to it. Especially when you compare it to the original where they don't hobble him. They just sort of put their arm round him and he walks with them to the wicker man. <laughs> he doesn't put up much of a fight. But in this, they take him to the wicker man and then the kid sets him alight. So Cage is dead. We end up in a bar with Lily Sobieski and another local. 
they're picking up James Franco and I forgot his name, Jason Ritter. And they've just graduated police academy. She says to him, when you go, will you take me with you? Film ends for Johnny Ramone, which is the weirdest <laughs> uh, tribute I've ever seen on a film. <laughs> so the budget on this was $40 million. Jesus. Yeah. The box office return was $38.8 million. Like that's a that's a decent return on a film. Had they not spent that much money, and I don't quite know how they've spent forty million because, other than building a Wicker Man, there isn't really <laughs> many big set pieces or anything. No, it's all out. It's all outside. There's mm. the few sets that they have. I mean, one's a house. You know, the hex, the hexagon, the hexagon B kind of wherever that was. That the B field. Yeah. And the plane, that's it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you could, if uh, you compare it to Midsummer, that was made for nine million dollars. Yeah, which is so that they have pissed money away on this movie. That's the only explanation. And the, they had a coke party. That's all they've done. They are in the kind of complete opposite of Bad Lieutenant. This people would have gone and seen this because of the original. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, would have. That's why it almost made its money back, I think. <clears throat> so IMDb rating is a 3.7, which I still think is quite high, to be perfectly honest. The Metacritic is a 36. Rotten Tomatoes is a bit more like it, though, to be honest. The fan response is a 17%, and the critic response is a 15%. That's about right for me. <laughs> Kim Newman from Empire... He said that this has to be, uh, this has limited interest to folks who do not know the old movie and an excruciating experience for those who do. Bad (laughs) idea, bad film. (laughs) Nigel Floyd from Time Out. They've been mostly positive on all the other podcasts we've done, Time Out have, but they could not hide their disdain at all on this one. Neil LeBute's utterly misconceived remake is boring, fright-free, catastrophe but I think Christy Lemire from the Associated Press puts it best it's never as scary or suspenseful as it aspires to be but it might be the greatest bad movie of the year with its clunky writing resulting in some surprisingly entertaining kooky moments I think that's fair but apparently not everybody hated it as you would attest to by looking at the Amazon five-star reviews. <laughs> now, a lot of the five-star reviews have basically been, oh, this is so bad, it's great fun, you need to watch it with the lads round. I don't know, every fucking review mentions, get the lads round. But we've got one. <clears throat> I don't quite understand all the negative comments regarding this film. I looked at it in complete isolation. The original film was amazing. However, this is a great film in its own right. (laughs) Totally different and very creepy. (laughs) And the acting from Cage and the rest of the cast is amazing. Sacrificing the policeman to save the bee population, while the original was to save failing crops. The ending was very similar and predictable. However, this film didn't disappoint in any way and still kept you on the edge right until the end. Five stars. (laughs) Totally different. Like, okay, one's about failing crops, one's about bees. That's not enough of a difference to say that the film's totally different. 
all they did was they basically changed the MacGuffin in the film. And also, you say it's totally different. This contains 80% of the original script. Mm, which right. is exactly, yeah. which is why I said that I think this is a piss take. It has to be. Because the, why, if you're going to do a scene for scene, do, at least do it properly. Mm. Yeah, that would have made more sense. At least, like, psycho it. It'll still be shit, but <laughs> it's the best option. And S. Poulin said, I couldn't wait to watch this film. It has you hooked from the start. Nicolas Cage is an excellent actor who plays his part to the full potential and really gets into the character. The plot was cryptic and intriguing, and I did not expect it to end the way it did. It keeps you on the edge of your seat, and I found myself shouting at the TV. I know it's a remake of a 70s film, which I have not seen, but it is fantastic. The Island is Strange and The People Stranger. If you want to watch a film that has you guessing what the ending is going to be throughout, then this is the film for you. Five stars. <laughs> okay, mate. The plot is cryptic, cryptic and intriguing. No, it's not. It's just badly written. <clears throat> so the good, the bad, and the crazy. Stu, you can start us off here, mate. <laughs> the, we'll do it in a reverse order. The bad, the bad is obviously really shit. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> with the, the script, the acting, the plot... What the they're added for no real reason. It's just mm. it. I'm I'm trying to think now. If if it, I didn't know the original, what would I be feeling about it? Would I be as would I be as intrigued as that guy? Just because obviously knowing it, and you're the Wicker Man. The, the actual end of the film is on the box, and it's in the title mm. of the film. So <laughs> yeah, which is a bit shit. It's really, a bit of a giveaway. Um, so it, it's hard to kind of put yourself there because you're not hardly anyone is in that situation because obviously mm. if you if you like film you're going to have seen the Wicker Man at some point or you'd expect anyway but it's just take, taking it as it is it's shit taking it as what I thought halfway through which is probably completely wrong it's a parody it's a masterpiece because it is so awful <laughs> Mm. But again, it, it, I don't think it was made for that reason, and it's kind of been kind of like retrofitted, like you said before, like the room was, where mm. it's so bad that it's good. But in this case, it's just laughable. It's not even good. Yeah, and there's no, Absolutely. there's no real good point. There's no good in it whatsoever, is there? I mean. Not not legitimately good. No, I mean, like, it, nothing you would actually say. Yeah, that was fantastic in a pile of shit. The, yeah, nothing stands out. And the, the only, for me, it's, it's the, like the only crazy. Okay. You look at the crazy bits, and the crazy bits is him going insane and running around like a lunatic <laughs> in, the, in the last twenty minutes. Yeah, but and, yeah, but that backs up the theory that it is a piss tape because it, the character is completely different from. I mean, how long is he there for? Two days? Three days? Something like that. It's never really explained, is it? Yeah. I mean, and there was mm. another thing. How did the plane end up sinking? Well, it's just its tail in the air. <laughs> in 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 a very small dock space. Not explained. Who cares? Mm. So it's... You take it as a film in its own right, then it's getting nothing. 
It's not even getting a rating because it's awful. But it's <laughs> taking it as a parody of a beloved original. It's getting about a six. <laughs> so it's you're averaging out about three either way. It's it's just <laughs> it's one of those things. But again, would I watch it again? Probably, yeah. Because uh, there's this uncut version, which probably does, doesn't sound like it adds anything to it, but it was strangely watchable yeah. in a really bad, weird way. If you're going to watch the unrated version, just skip the first hour or so, first 50 minutes maybe, and just watch the, the final act. You'll probably get all you need to from that, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Matthew, what's your good, bad and crazy on this one? Uh, well, my, my good is it's bad in the... <laughs> It's it's um it wouldn't take much convincing for me to think this is a comedy film like when Scary Movie and those kind of films came out that it was part of the same universe because mm-hmm. as you know as serious as it probably wants to be it it it, it, it falls on the, the the laughable in in like in such a comedy way um like <laughs> when he <laughs> oh, we've already mentioned it but when he goes oh my legs. <laughs> <laughs> I literally couldn't stop laughing because it was like how insulting, just like, to, like just, just so we know what's going on, but he doesn't want to show us. Um, so it's good as it's bad as uh, it's 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 really bad, but to the point where it's very enjoyable. Like I enjoyed it, and I would recommend it to somebody else as well, but not mm. because not, not because not for the not for the right reasons though. Mm. Um, for a reason, as something that you actually need cheering up for, not because you're watching a man get <laughs> set alight. Um, <laughs> But my my crazies, there was a moment in it that just that had me in like hysterics because he's on the boat, he rings someone, I can't remember who he rings, and he goes, "Oh, I'm." He doesn't use this term, but just just for the sake of like our UK audience, "Oh, I'm glad I've got your voicemail," and then the signal starts to run out, and then he goes, "Hello." Hello, hello, as if he's expecting <laughs> someone to respond on the other end. And I was like, You're talking to a voicemail, you idiot. Like, it just, it was just, it's silly stuff like that. But then when they do, when they try to get like continuity in place, but then they miss really obvious stuff like that, it's, it's funny but frustrating at the same time. I never even clocked that. That is superb. <laughs> uh, so for me, as I've already said, the first two acts are painful in this. So that that's my bad. So I suppose my good is the third act where things just go completely off the rails mental. It's not good in the classical sense of the word, but I just couldn't help laughing along. And there are those scenes like that one with Lily Sobieski in the field where they can't figure out what tomorrow <laughs> is for some reason. It really fucking tickled me. So I suppose that's my good in that like Matt just said, it's good in that it's bad. The crazy, as I've already mentioned, 80% of the dialogue in this film was taken from the 73 original. So if they've put such little effort into actually putting a script together, how the hell have they spent $40 million on this film? That is an astronomical amount for something which they've just farted out. It's insulting, really, how they've got away with putting a film out for that much money. So did you enjoy this film? And I suppose the answer to this, did you enjoy this film and would you recommend it? Uh, possibly two separate a- answers. <laughs> so, Stu, start us off again, mate. As soon as I finished watching it, I thought, I can't wait to talk about this. 
<laughs> and, and like Matt said, you have to, you have to, you have to rec- if you're going to recommend it, you have to recommend it with a, with a pretense that, yeah, this is going to be shit, but watch it because it's funny. Mm. <laughs> because if you tell, if you sell someone, oh, that it's a, it's a decent remake of a, a classic film, and then they come, they ain't going to talk to you ever again. <laughs> so it's as long as you pretense it with that that first thing yeah I was strange you would recommend it and I kind of did enjoy it in a kind of sick weird way yeah Matt what about yourself yeah I, I, I echo exactly what um, Shu said um, as long as you give it any recommendation with a disclaimer um, <laughs> there's absolutely no reason why you can't recommend it um, and I did enjoy it and it's it doesn't do what next does, which is offensive because it's not shit to the point. It's it's not got any redeeming qualities about it, even though it's shit. Whereas this has plenty of redeeming qualities about it, um, yeah. and it's, it 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 falls just on the good side of that very thin line of being mm. shit enough that it's funny and, and and enjoyable watch. And I'll I'll probably watch it again in the semi near future just for when I'll need like a laugh so for that reason yeah. you know, I, I'd recommend it but I'm not recommending it as like an artistic piece or anything like that or for the reasons that it wants to exist as like a serious piece mm. I mean I probably haven't seen it for about three or four years and I think that's probably the right length of time to leave it before watching it again to mm-hmm. be honest yeah. <laughs> it's not quite up there with The Room which is a film I watch annually because it's great but yeah every three years or so I think we'll, we'll do so my answer to that question is sorta. Like I say, you could probably cut the first half of this film off, jumping halfway through. You won't have missed anything, to be perfectly honest. And the story gets told through that final act again because it keeps going over the same old crap. Mm-hmm. And you at least get the fun stuff that goes on. It's like the trashy B movie lover in me says, Yeah, this is great. But the highbrow art appreciator in me <laughs> tells you to just run far away Cage also felt that the criticism of this film was harsh as Stu said he stated that he and Neil LeBute made this film as an absurdist black comedy the problem with him saying that is the comedy doesn't arrive from the script of the story mm-hmm. the comedy is purely from the dreadful acting and the fact that they don't have an eye for detail in anything that they do it's a comedy in the way that tommy wiseau claims that the room is a comedy (laughs) it became a comedy when people started laughing at it that's why it's a comedy what i would say though a couple of months ago i picked up uh total film magazine and it had a list of the 20 worst films ever made and the wicker man was number 19 I would go as far as saying this isn't even Nick Cage's worst film. It's not even Nick Cage's worst film that we've watched in the last month. It is. It is I'd still rather watch this any day than fucking knowing. <laughs> All over. Yeah, this isn't, get, this isn't getting anywhere near my top, my, my, my bottom five. No. No, I could re-watch this. There, there, some of the films we've watched have got no chance. Pay the Ghost as well. That can fuck right up. <laughs> But yeah, like 19 in the top 20 worst films ever. That's a bit of a joke, to be perfectly yeah. honest. I think, it, don't get me wrong, it is terrible, but it is sort of competently shot. 
it's just not competently scripted. Mm-hmm. Fair. So, Nick Cage, good or bad? Uh, I'll kick it off. He's a bad actor in this. Like, unquestionably a bad actor. It's a bipolar performance. He's either too low-key or he's too over-the-top. There is no, like, smooth gradient between the two. So he's bad. Matt? Unfortunately, Nicholas, uh, there's not a lot really here that you've done to redeem all the good work from Bad Lieutenant. So, unfortunately, <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's a no from me. Stu? Yeah, it's... it's ev- <laughs> I mean, this performance is everything the kind of the piss take of Nicolas Cage is mm. in this one film, where it's ridiculously over the top, or like you said, there's no middle ground. Whereas yeah. even in Bad Lieutenant, there's there's range in this. There's no range; it's either on or off. Mm. So it's a very it's in the bad category, even though it's very entertaining in the wrong reasons. <laughs> And I, I don't know about you, Pear, but it almost feels like this film was the, the starting point of how we got to this podcast, mm. almost. like This is where Cage starts to divert into great and dreadful stuff. This is the, the film where it almost was the breaking point between the two, I think. Yeah, it, yeah. it's got... It, I mean, it's a, you think of the blockbusters that he did after this? How many are there, really? It starts to dry up after this point, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's that's what yeah. that's what I mean when I say that it's this is the caricature of Nicolas Cage in this film, and yeah, obviously absolutely. making something like this put a lot of people off, and it's took a long time to get back on the pedestal. Mm. I think he has sort of embraced this this alter ego to the the Oscar winning Nick Cage. Like he, he's embraced this schlocky, dreadful stuff. Now, I think that that works for him, knowing that he's capable of both sides of the coin. Personally, mm-hmm. yeah, he's made it work for him. So yeah, good on the fella. <laughs> so that's us checking out for another week. Thank you very much for joining us once again. We're obviously up with a question cast next up. Get your questions in at Cage Fighting Pod on the Twitter and cagefightingpod at gmail.com on the emails. Obviously, if you've got any questions, get them sent in. If you want to take us to task or you've got any stories about any Nick Cage or anything at all, really, just drop us a line. Uh, And if you could also give us a five-star review. I know we keep mentioning it every fucking week, but (laughs) it's how we grow. So for this week, Matt, would you like to say goodbye? Oh, my leg. Oh, you fucker. <laughs> you stole... <laughs> Sorry, Goodbye, you stole... You've stolen my dreams. <laughs> Stu, would you like to say goodbye? No, I wouldn't know, actually. I'm quite mad. <laughs> ta And it's goodbye from me. And remember, another plant? <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> You little liars. Rowan Woodward is your classmate, isn't she? Isn't she? That is her desk. And you're the biggest liar of them all. I am warning you. You tell me another and I'll rescue myself. That is a promise, Miss 
Rose, sister Rose. Of course. Another plant, Rose. 